It is good to be with you today, uh, church. I uh, hope you have your Bibles open or a device open to 2 Samuel chapter 15. The human subject of our text today is a man um, of extraordinary physical and mental gifts. Those of you that were here last week, he was described as, uh, paraphrasing, the, the most handsome person in Israel from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. He was not only incredibly physically attractive and appealing, but he was a charismatic man. He was a conversationalist. He was someone who would win you over very quickly. He had these extraordinary gifts. He was skillful. He was ambitious. Uh, but here it comes. He was self-absorbed, narcissistic, and he's willing to do anything, anything to become king, to have power. If you haven't been here in recent weeks or you just want some uh, summary, let me give you a little bit of timeline of this person we are talking about, the human subject of today's text, uh, the son of David, Absalom. If we think about what happened back in chapter 13, he showed this brutal insensitivity toward Tamar, his sister. She was assaulted, she was raped, and this is what she said, uh, what the scripture says about her after that tragic event. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and, she, and went away, weeping aloud as she went. She was in one of these time periods of life where all you can really do is weep and mourn. And her brother, Absalom, what does he say to her? And there's not much to say to someone who's in this sort of condition, let me remind you. Words are not that helpful. But what does he say to her? Here's what he says. Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? That is, her half-brother who raped her. Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. This is what he said to her. Moving along in the timeline. He waits two years to murder this guy. So as we put together the pieces of the puzzle, he didn't murder him, I want to suggest out of a, a devoted and outrageous defense of his sister's honor. He waited two years to murder him. Why did he murder him? Well, it just so happens that Amnon was nest, next in line for the throne of the father, King David. This, I want to suggest, is the reason he very patiently waits two years 
and murders Amnon. He then takes off to Geshur, outside of Israel. He's there for three years, and and David, his father, the king, makes it known, "You, you are not welcome back here. So he ran away on his own, but he is not welcome back. He's there for three years. He comes up with a plan, utilizes Joab, the wise woman of Tekoa, and gets an invitation back to Israel. He comes back to Jerusalem. He's there for two years, but he can get no audience with his father. His father will not see him face to face. Five years have gone by. He's forbidden to see his father. So to get his attention, he ends up setting this barley field on fire that belongs to one of David's main men, his general, his chief of staff, Joab. This enables him to get an audience with his father. And that's where we leave it off last week's passage. After all of these years of not seeing his father and the king of Israel, he finally sees him. David says, okay, bring him here. And David kisses him. That's the end of chapter 14. And a kiss in the ancient world between men was like a, a bear hug or a, or a handshake It's not something that we do as Americans, but this was a way to show affection and love to his son, who, in many ways, it was David's responsibility to carry out the law and execute his son for the murder he committed. But David did not do that, and David kisses him. So with that, we come to chapter 15 and verse 1. We're going to go through these 12 verses uh, today as we get started in today's text. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. (laughs) So can you picture this? So I want to try to help you out. We have to use our imaginations when we're reading the Bible. So here's a chariot. It's got uh, six guys around it. Uh, none of them are running. So imagine the, the scene uh, with a chariot, the equivalent of, a, of a, th- this bulletproof limousine here in the photograph. Horses all around and 50 men running out in front of him. This is the estranged king's son, Is he making a statement? Say yes. Is he making a statement? He is making a statement. He's saying, I'm the guy who should be in the back seat of the limousine. I've got a chariot. I've got these men running. He aspires to be king. This is what is being signaled to us. In verse 1. Verse 2. He would get up early. Absalom would get up early. And he would stand by the side of the road. Leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint. To be placed before the king for a decision. Let me just pause there. The, the reader of Second Samuel. Knows how this would normally go. 
Who did the wise woman of Tekoa, who wanted a decision about her son not being persecuted under the law, who did she go to, church? King David. So he would function as the judge. So Absalom has placed himself um, outside uh, the city gate, along the road, I'm in verse 2, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, hey, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes um, of Israel, or as the translation that was read earlier, I'm from such and such, such and such a tribe. And, and he's wanting, he's wanting to, to interfere with the process as it would normally happen. Look at verse 3. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. Now notice what's going on here. He is lying. He is preventing the person who wants adjudication, wants help. He's telling him, the, there, there's no one here. The reality is he's cutting off those seeking the king and lying and saying that the king is not going to help you. And by the way, you, you have a really good case. I, I, I'm on your side. Man, you deserve justice. That's what he would say to everyone. He didn't carefully weigh what they were saying. What is he doing? Verse 4. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Absalom is essentially saying, oh, that I were king. This is what the chariot and the runners and all of his crew are, are, are communicating to the community, to Israel. Now, news of what he was doing, what Absalom was doing, it must have reached David. So something that is in the text but isn't in the text is that one of the themes of these chapters is David does nothing. He does nothing back when his daughter is raped. He does nothing. When the execution of his son was called for by Torah, he does nothing. He could have pardoned him. He could have carried out the law. He does nothing. One of the themes, there's no verse that's saying it, but all of these paragraphs are screaming, David does nothing. He does nothing. He has really done nothing well as a father, or as a king, since chapter 11 and verse 1, where things went awry late one afternoon when he was walking around on his deck. So, back to our text. Um, we're at verse 5, right? Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, you see what's going on? Reverence and awe for someone who is acting like a king. He has the chariot. He has the runners. He, he has the horses. He's here to help us. 
So people are bowing down before him. Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. He would show affection to the men who were coming to the court of law for justice. Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is a skillful dude. This is a charismatic dude. This is a good-looking dude. And what he looks like and what he is are two very different things. And the reader by this point can see this. But not many people are seeing this in Israel. Look at verse 7. At the end of four years... So we see this guy's patience. That's why I put the timeline on here. He has been going to the city gate and saying, hey, you got a case, shaking hands, kissing dudes, embracing them. He did that for four years. So at the end of four years of of, of getting the people's hearts and winning them, he says to the king, who is his father, let me go to Hebron. And fulfill a vow I made to Yahweh. While your servant was living at, at Geshur in, in Aram, when I was with my father-in-law, the, the, these weren't Israelites. These weren't fears of Yahweh's. The, these weren't people the coming, coming covenant-keeping God of Israel. But now that I'm back, um, I made this vow. And this is the vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord. I will worship Yahweh in Hebron. What's going on here? Is he wanting to go and worship Yahweh in Hebron? Say no. He is not. He is lying. Those of you that are here that are parents, that are grandparents, do you long for your children, whether they are young or old, to worship the one true God? You do. I do. We long for our children to worship the one true God. So what happens when your child, your adult child, comes to you and says, you know, hey, Dad, thanks for bringing me back to Jerusalem. I made this vow. Will you bless me so I can go back to Jerusalem and worship God? is, Is David's power of discernment exercised here? It's not. Psychologists uh, use the word um, halo effect or confirmation bias. My prior beliefs support what I want to believe. I want to believe that my son is going to worship the Lord and be an honorable man. I haven't really been one recently, but I have this great desire for my son to be what I once was before chapter 11 verse 1. So his son is asking to go and worship in Hebron, this important place where David's ministry began. Logicians call this the fallacy of wishful thinking. He wants his son to be the kind of man who would ask his father, hey, can I go? Will you bless me and go and worship in Hebron? Verse 9, the king says to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Verse 10, this isn't hard to figure out. Absalom sent secret 
messengers or spies throughout the tribes of Israel. This includes Judah, the north and the south. This includes Judah and Israel everywhere. He, He sends spies everywhere. This is the kind of man who asks, may I go and worship? And then he's sending spies to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king, or Absalom reigns in Hebron. Verse 11, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests, and they went quite innocently. Meaning, the reader knows what's going on. These people don't know what is going on. They're they're, they're just following him. They don't know that he has a coup, a conspiracy going. They're knowing nothing about the matter. Verse 12. While Absalom was offering sacrifices. This is something a newly anointed king would do. As he is offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. David's close personal counselor. We'll come back to him in a moment. He sends for him to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gains strength. And Absalom's following kept on increasing. He was an effective, evil, deceiving leader. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So Ahithophel, if you'd asked me before this week who Ahithophel was, I would say, I have no idea who Ahithophel is. Maybe if you're in the honors class, you know who Ahithophel is. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandpa. So those of you that don't remember the story, David sent the sheriff's deputies, if you will, to get this beautiful granddaughter of Ahithophel, bring her to the palace. He commits adultery with her. He then tries to cover it up, doesn't work. So he kills Ahithophel's granddaughter's husband. So we got a lot of grandpas in here today. So put yourself in Ahithophel's situation. How are you going to feel about David? You stole my granddaughter. Men could do that in the ancient world. Literally stole her. Commit adultery with her, and then killed her husband. So this grandpa becomes David's counselor. Now, do you think he was really, in heart of hearts, his counselor? <laughs> Say no. Uh, he, he wasn't. How do we know that? Because he flipped to the dark side once he, Absalom, sends word, says, hey, come on over here. Look at the horses I have. Look at the chariot I have. Look at the following I have. This guy, my father, can't do anything since chapter 11, verse 1. I've got a following. Now, to David's credit, I mean, we don't have a lot of detail here, but I want to think that David, we know David repented. We know David was forgiven for what he did with Bathsheba. 
So I read between the lines and say he won Ahithophel over and brought him in to his cabinet. But he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have. It it reminds me of of one of our uh, presidents who brought the people that he ran against into the White House and made them part of his cabinet. I don't know if any of you have read uh, this book, Team of Rivals, describing the most extraordinary cabinet in U.S. presidential history, where basically all the people that you run against that are against you, you then befriend them, and they become part of your team. Doris Kearns Goodwood, she was asked, how did you come up with the idea for, for this book? She says, I discovered that Lincoln was spending more time with his cabinet members than with Mary, his wife. He and his cabinet members not only worked together, they also socialized together. In some ways, he was more married to them than he was to Mary. They were not only his his political colleagues, but they became his friends. I began to realize that they were really important figures in Lincoln's life, emotionally as well as politically. When I discovered that they had started as Lincoln's rival, I realized that was a story I wanted to explore. I think David did a similar thing here, bringing Ahithophel into his his cabinet as his counselor, but he wasn't actually really with David, unlike President Lincoln's men. Okay, that's our unit of scripture for today. So let's stand for a benediction. No. How, How does this passage... How do these events and this passage from 3,000 years ago relate to our lives? That's the final and most important part of reading the Bible as well as in preaching the Bible. How does God want to change you or me in light of this text? And the first thing I want to say is that the people of Israel in this text whose hearts were stolen by Absalom, should have recognized what was happening because of the prior words of God. You ever heard anything about our strength being in horses and chariots? That's what Absalom was all about. So one of the ways that this passage relates to the life of a Christ follower in the foothills in 2023 has to do with how important it is that we listen to and understand primarily the Word of God and not charismatic and persuasive and skilled leaders, particularly when those leaders are doing evil. Look with me on the screen back at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8. Um, I have it as 2 Samuel, but this is actually 1 Samuel chapter 8. But just look on the screen with me. But when they said, the people of Israel, give us a king to lead us, that this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord, Yahweh, told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. They have rejected God. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you, Samuel. Now listen to them. 
but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking, who, who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. Listen to his warning from God. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive uh, groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your men servants and maid servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. What I am saying is they refused to listen to the word of God that came through Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Let me insert my paraphrase here. We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a cooler black Cadillac with more runners and more horses around it. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. We need a strong and mighty military. We need to be a first world power. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. The people, back to chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, did not listen to the word of God. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. This is what should have happened when verse 1 began, long before the four years ended of Absalom being outside the city of gate, that people were recognizing what was going on. This isn't a king who was anointed by God, who boasts in him, who isn't concerned about pomp and circumstance, who knows that the Lord is the one who gives victories. So what I'm saying is it might not be so intuitive at first reading, but in 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 12, what we are seeing is that you and I need God's grace to stay tethered to the word of God, which in our case doesn't come through the prophet Samuel or the prophet Nathan. It comes through the written word of God that is right in front of me here on the pulpit. We are called to stay tethered to this. That is what has not happened in ancient Israel in 2 Samuel 15. Are you tethered to Scripture? Do you know that word? Uh, I, I like this word. I have it in my mind. When I was a boy, there weren't as many fences around in, in, in yards where, we, where I lived uh, in Ohio. And if you had a dog and you actually wanted that dog to stay there, you, you'd run a wire between two trees and then you would have a tether that came off of that wire. And that area between those two trees was just run down, right? 
the, the dog can only go so far from that wire that's, you know, 10 feet in the air coming down to his collar. That's all he can go. That's the only space he can. He can run fast, but all he can do is right back and forth. The people of God are to be tethered to the word of God. And they have moved away from the word of God. So the careful reader of 2 Samuel 15 will not be going, these bozos will be going, how tethered am I to the word of God? What influences you? What influences you in your life? Are you watching your life and your doctrine closely? Are you tethered? Are you primarily influenced by this in your life? Is this what you think and feel? Is this what helps you to know how to be a man or a woman? Are you tethered to it? They were not. A couple years ago at Gospel Coalition Conference we went to, we were introduced to this guy, Brett McCracken. I didn't read his book, but we heard this presentation and he had this pyramid of wisdom. And what he's talking about in this book, which I haven't read, but I've benefited from this diagram that I'm going to show you in just a moment. The, the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. Life is complicated. You and I are complicated, and we need wisdom. We can't always open the Bible, and it just makes a decision for us. So we need wisdom. I don't know what to do here, so what I need is wisdom. Where does this wisdom come from? It comes primarily from the Bible. He lists it as our daily bread. And I would put a much thicker line here if I were to modify this pyramid between the Bible and everything that I'm about to show you that he wrote above that. Because the Bible alone is without error. The Bible alone is authoritative. And this should be the primary thing influencing your life and my life, how you think and who you are. So what else might we get wisdom from? The next thing in his pyramid is the church. And he divides this into local or tradition. I might say local or universal. And so with local, he's saying the embodied rhythms and worship, what we are doing this morning. Wise people in a physical place, we're together face to face in this room. We are proximate to one another. The local church is a place where we get wisdom. But also he has the word tradition on here. We might put universal church or church history. Time-tested theology from wise people in Christian history. We have continuity with the Holy Spirit working over 2,000 years of church history. So this is a second place where we can get wisdom. But I would draw a very dark line between the Bible and everything else above it. He goes on. Nature and beauty. Get outside. General revelation. Gratitude for the given, for what God has given us. We live in an incredibly beautiful place that God has created. And then he goes on to enjoying and making art, observation and, and attentiveness to what God has made and to what his followers have made in, in artistic expression and beauty, nature and beauty. He goes on to books, and I need to pick up the pace here. More old books than new 
great books brought away. If, if a book is still being published from one or two centuries ago, it's very likely that that is a good book and a book worth reading. And then we get to uh, the internet. The internet. He says, um, use Google and Wikipedia only as needed. When we were at the conference, he was talking about how the more you are just on the internet loosely, you are at the mercy of algorithms of people who do not have Jesus and the glory of God in mind. So focus on trusted sources. Prioritize content recommended by wise people. And at the very top of his pyramid is social media, which in my chart would probably be off the pyramid. He says, use social media sparingly. Learn to live without. Too much is bad for overall health. It is full of gossip. There's God-glorifying things on social media, but in general, we should prioritize. The main thing I'm trying to say this morning is the Bible and Scripture to gain wisdom. So this was number one of three ways we could respond to today's text. Let me do the rest of these very briefly. So I'm saying stay tethered to Scripture. And then the second thing I'm going to say is beware of Absaloms. Beware of Absaloms. They're out there. Gifted, talented, charismatic people who are not who you think they are. Romans 16 speaks of them. This would be a New Testament passage that correlates with 2 Samuel 15. Now I urge you, brothers, Christians, men and women, note those, who are note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. The New Testament calls us to avoid people who cause divisions and offenses. He goes on. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. That is a way we could describe Absalom, someone who serves his own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. That's what he did in ancient Israel. One commentator, Doug Moo, on Romans 16, he says this, uh, talking about this word belly. Most think, however, that belly has virtually the same meaning here as the word flesh often does in Paul. Serving their belly would then refer to egocentrism. It would refer to pride. It would refer to my life is all about me and I'm going to get what I want. And what Absalom wants is to be king. doesn't matter that his father is the anointed king. He wants to be king. So I need God's grace to stay tethered to Scripture and second, to beware of Absalom's. And then thirdly and finally this morning, we need to be careful uh, that we ourselves are not Absalom's ourselves. He must increase. Jesus must increase. But I must decrease. The joy of my life is going to be discovered as my life becomes all about Christ. This is what John the Baptist said, and we want to follow him in saying and believing the same thing. What the world says is your life is all about you. You're the best. It's all about you. You deserve it. You get what you want. That is the life that Absalom lived. That is an anti-Christ sort of life. Proverbs 26, 28. Last verse for today. It says, a lying tongue hates those it hurts. That's true about Absalom. 
and a flattering mouth works ruin. If you spend some time meditating on this proverb, I think the first reading is the flattering mouth works ruin in the lives you're, you're lying to, Absalom, or you or me if we're doing this. But who else's life does it ruin? A flattering mouth. It ruins the life of the one doing the flattering. It ruins Absalom's life. The ruin that he works could be on himself, the person in this proverb, an idea that fits the context in Proverbs, or on others, which seems to be the point of the verse. The ruin comes to himself, to Absalom. We must not be flatterers. Flatterers are liars, those who use excessive praise to other people to get their way. In sum, the villain in Proverbs victimizes himself. So we need God's grace to stay tethered to Scripture. We need to be aware of Absalom's, and we need to not be an Absalom. We need God's help to be free and confident and joyful Not because we get what we want. What he wanted was to be king. But because Christ is in us. Christ loves us. He adopted us into his family. And we are forgiven. Let's bow our heads and pray together. And thank God for our relationship with our Savior. Lord, free us from connecting our joy and our identity with positions of power or with wanting to be under people in positions of power. That's what ancient Israel was doing as their hearts were aligned with Absalom. Lord, we pray that we would find our contentment, our peace, our joy in you, in Christ alone. Our hope is found. God, help us to stay tethered to the word of God and for it to be the primary influence in our lives. And as it becomes increasingly the primary influence in our lives, we will experience joy and confidence and fear and anxieties will begin to be displaced. I pray that that would be true among us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.